0: Hello and welcome to the second episode of the podcast Live Theory: Applications for Writing and Rhetoric. I'm Ryan Liak, co-chair with my colleague Meredith Cruz of the Professional Development Committee and the Dornsife Writing Program at USC, which hosts this podcast. We're here today with Dr. Boris Nunley, associate professor of English at UC Riverside, who specializes in rhetoric, philosophy, and union psychology, and he'll be giving a talk entitled "Redoing Rhetoric." incivility, AOC, and the limits of persuasion, followed by a substantive discussion with our USC and uh, other colleagues here are, are part of the rhetoric reading group at UC Irvine, hosted by the Rhetoric and Composition Graduate Student Collective. Um, first, a short note that for us uh, here at Live Theory, our mission is not to bring theory down from the clouds or from the ivory tower, Uh, Rather, theory never belonged and perhaps never was in the clouds (laughs) to begin with. Theory occurs at the ground level, uh, shaping our ways of being in the world and figures prominently in how we enter the classroom, how we engage our students and shape assignments, learning outcomes and the like. Uh, I'll speak for myself here that theory to me is akin to Carl Jung's philosophical or inverted tree rooted both upward and downward. The goal is neither the depths nor the heights but the center the ground where all of our rhetorical action takes place and comes to matter so with that i'll turn it over to my colleague and co-chair meredith cruz for a few words who will turn it over to boris nunley
1: ah uh, yes i'd just like to welcome everyone thank you so much this is our second uh so it's a you know new <laughs> podcast that we've started here and we hope that it continues Uh, My name is Meredith Cruz, I'm in the writing program with Ryan, and we are really happy to have Professor Nunley here, so I'm just going to go ahead and turn it over to him, and hopefully we can have a great discussion afterwards, so
2: thank you all.
3: Uh, Welcome everyone, Um, I really appreciate you all coming, uh, particularly given the pandemic and all of that, and we know that in different ways it's been burdensome for a lot of different people in a lot of different ways, and so I really I just wanna recognize that. And again, I really appreciate your coming and seeing some of you who haven't seen it in a while. <clears throat> so the talk is gonna be about 20 minutes. So let's get started. So the name of the talk is Redoing rhetoric, uh, Incivility, uh, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, who was referred to Lovingly as ALC, and The Limits of Persuasion and as you can see, I have a question mark there. So I'm not interested in totally getting rid of persuasion. I think it's useful. But a couple of events occurred in terms of my reading that made me think I had to take, think about reading more broadly. One is that I read Virg Earleman's book, Reason Resonance. and Resonance. It's, it's a history of modern orality, A-U-R-A-L-I-T-Y. And he talks about, and this is like a 500 page book, it's like a Torah almost, it's so big. But he talks about how hearing has been relegated as a second sense, it's somehow less rational and less uh, modern than the first sense sight. So this whole book then is about not degrading reason, but to talk about how reason resonance. residence the ear is connected. And so for me, that's important, right? Because it makes me think of rhetoric and rhetorical listening and how we can listen differently, uh, particularly given, uh, as uh, Machuko Katadi points out in the death of truth, that with these different knowledge silos that folks just can't hear or listen to one another, they seem to be incapable of doing it. And then secondly, I was reading this book in black, uh, actually reviewed by Joshua Myers, and he was talking about the importance of black life etc cetera, etc cetera. and what he ended with was this notion of take time to listen to the vibrations of blues jazz and hip-hop so this invitation then is not about content as much as as sound right in terms of sound studies and tone and that sort of thing so maybe begin to think about how i could think through rhetoric a little bit differently so what i want to do want to do is use Alexander Ocasio-Cortez Ocosio, and her <laughs> encounter with Ted Otohos on the uh, Capitol Steps, actually, and use that as a way to think about issues of civility, about what it means uh, to think about tropes, think about affect, and what that means in a, in a classroom in a, in, a, in a neoliberal university. Alexander Castillo cortez is a progressive. She, her, her campaign was amazing, I'm sure as many of you know. She actually ran 80%, 80% of her campaign behind a bar, right, with a paper bag. So she's really kind of earned her, her way up. She's for, um, not only for the reform of police, but for his abolition. She's for the abolition of the immigration service. She's pushing green life, that sort of thing. So she's really making her way and causing some ruffles for some people in the Congress. So what I'll do is talk about what happened. And so I'll give you a short version because many of you are familiar with it. During a discussion, AOC talked about how the crime and the violence in the area was due to poverty. And that's hardly like some, a new assertion. But some folks really took umbrage at that. So she's walking up the Capitol steps and the, senators, uh, the representative sees her. According to two reports, uh, one by David Remick of the New Yorker and the other by Rebecca Traster said that he called her, he said, you're crazy. You don't know what you're talking about. He called her an effing, the B word and just tried to humiliate her. When she walked away and called him rude, he came up to her again and called her uh, the B word. Now this is interesting in terms of doing theory, right? Because actually I wanted to use another title because she actually embraced the B word and said, yeah, I'm a bitch, so what? But my own like rhetorical terrain was getting in the way of even how I received it because I know that's what I wanted to do around through. So I'm actually like doing theory, but not doing exactly the theory I wanted to do in my performance. So that's what I kind of want to set up. And we can talk more about what else went on. He apologized, but it was a a bogus apology. Uh, We'll talk about that later, Uh, but he refused to mention her name, right? So this is kind of silencing that's been going on for centuries around women and their voices. And how that gets connected to domestic violence, so it really resonated in a larger way than just an insult of one person. Why rhetoric and not philosophy? I'm doing this for Orion as well as everyone else because Brian and I have all these discussions about <laughs> philosophy. And barring from uh, E.J. Corbett, right? My presi- and that's why I love this notion of doing theory. Well, he argued that rhetorical criticism is not interested in what texts are. Rhetorical criticism is interested in what texts do, right? So I'm interested in what tropes do. And one of the reasons I'm really interested is because you read newspapers, you read books, you read scholarly journals, and folks deploy the term trope with a, a, in a plethora of different ways and really define what it means other than it's a turning, right? Or it's a metaphor and different theorists, of course, talk about the various kinds of metaphors, that sort of thing. Kenneth Berg does it, and quite a few other people have done it. But that doesn't seem to me to capture what tropes do in the culture. So what I want to do is I'm gonna offer you a definition of a trope, and then as we talk, we can like hone it, get rid of it or whatever, but it's kind of a placeholder. Uh, but I did think a lot about it. And you can see here why uh, I think rhetoric is not important. I mean, why rhetoric is important because as Hortest Spiller points out, that's to remind my critical theory colleagues here all the time sticks and bricks may break our bones but words and images will certainly kill us mm. uh, and so I, that makes rhetoric and images important right even on the even on the level of of, of our uh neurology they talk about how meta the scientists talk about how meta narratives actually reshape our brains in certain kind of ways and for me it's not the notion of there's a rhetorical being what I would argue is that being is indeed rhetorical. Why talk about this particular woman? Well, because I'm not just talking about her, right? If you look at this quote, it's what Rebecca Solnit refers to, right, as mansplaining. She even has a book about what men explain to me. So here it's kind of, it's representative of, of that. That's an excellent suggestion, Miss Triggs. Perhaps one of the men here can make it. And the reason why I want to make that gesture is that it's easy to get Senator Toho and, and, and Trump and others and say, well, they're just outliers. But what she makes clear is that this kind of thing happens all the time with educated men, with working class men. It's prevalent. And she said that all women understand that. So I think that's why it's important to use Rebecca Solnit and her and her work, and I particularly think too, even the kind of her recent book, Recollections of My Non-Existence, really does the kind of work of how women get silenced and how they get marginalized. And more importantly, right, and I highly recommend you get a, buy a book and look at a book called uh, Women in Power by Mary Beard, where it's the it's one of the few books that half of the book is about oratory. And she really talks about women and and the inability of them to not speak in public. And how she and she points out what we all know, right, that this is not incidental, that it is structural, right? That a certain kind of of rhetorical possibility is very part of the culture of so-called public speaking. And she points that out. And what I'm showing you here, right, is a, a picture from the Odyssey that she talks about quite a bit in terms of the Western imagination. Well, and, and folks, of course, think the book is about Odysseus, but it's also about Penelope, right, and her son. And when the suitors are, uh, are talking to her, she, she pushes them back and her son tells her to like, be quiet, to go up into her room, right, that sort of thing, that she is not to speak in this kind of public way ben johnson right the philosopher made a comment about the best man speaking is when a woman is silent in 2015 in south carolina a senator did not like the fact that women were participating in the general assembly and he said well in the adam and eve story males were made first women were a rib and so men should speak should only speak in public So this stuff has a history, right? It's not incidental, it's not accidental, it's structural. And Mary Beard does a wonderful job of pointing all of that out. In a piece in the New Yorker, David Remick said that not only was AOC's speech well-ordered, not ugly, and the best speech that he had heard in years, but he talked about the notion that she returned rhetorical dynamism to, to discourse in the Senate, or excuse me, to the House. And here, what I think is with is important, right? And again, it intersects with Ryan's issues in quantum figures, because this notion of rhetorical diamondism talks about tropes, it talks about rhetoric, but in terms of energy and force and movement and figure. And quantum physics, and of course, affect theory allows us to understand tropes in that way. So for me, this this notion of rhetorical dynamism is very, very important. My thinking about this is informed in a way by a dissertation that was published in 2020 by Joshua M. Ray, and it's called The Fiery Furnaces of Hell, Rhetorical Dynamism in Youngtown, Ohio, right? And here he talks about four notions of rhetorical dynamism that wasn't useful, for, useful to me, but the fact that Remick brought it up he brought it up, and I noticed in rhetoric and technology, there's an article, there's two or three articles on rhetorical dynamism. So for me, the notion of dynamism is important because it allows me to talk about tropes in a different sort of way. Now, here's my definition of trope. So you can look at it, and then it's really packed, unpacked, but it was worse. But I actually like what it's attempting to do around tropes and what tropes do in. The, in, in society, what, it, what they do in the world. Tropes, to talk about tropes attorney turning just doesn't get it. I'm even more provocative. When the, uh, the congressman saw AOC, he didn't see her. He saw a trope and he responded to a trope because tropes like that, it, they erase, uh, they deprivilege the personal. I even wrote a piece on a professor who was a friend of mine he had been working with these two people at college you know for several years and they met him outside at a gathering and they didn't know who he was until he went up to him and said hey i'm so and so so again i think this notion of the trope and the work that it does and the notion of intensities and embodiment between and through bodies is important in that way so we could talk more about that uh again i actually want us to talk about it and see why you think it works or why you think it doesn't work, et cetera, et cetera. Right? Civility. For a few years, I was thinking we should get rid of civility, but you know what, our current president, I don't know about that. So I have to rethink, (laughs) but certainly the way we think about civility is important. So what I have here are different ways to think about civility. And what Rebecca Transter argues is that poisonous male incivility is part and parcel of being acceptable so when Donald Trump and Senator Toho behave the way they do they get dismissed because of their politics not because of their incivility so what I'm trying to do here is denaturalize the notion of civility put it in a place and and then kind of discuss that I think how this works out in the world is well not how I I don't think it, it works out in the world in this way this is an example the architect, Fred Gary, wanted to build a museum of tolerance between Jerusalem and Palestine. And at it, and it first it was a go, but he had to give up the project. Why? Because in Hebrew, the notion of tolerance addresses the question of tolerant for whom, where. So this notion of tolerance was denaturalized. So what I want to do here is denaturalize the notion of civility because, as Jane Goodall says, it doesn't take much to be a difficult woman. That's why there's so many of them now i did this purposely this is dark matter and this notion of dark matter that's really popular in, um, in quantum physics and physics what i what, the reason i want to use that term is it allows us me to talk about patriarchy and how it's invisible in its function until there's a crisis right so like with dark matter it's just about everyone we can't even see it until uh, we know it exists because of the affect and the effect it has on subjects that we can directly observe, like what happened with ALC, what happened with Hillary Clinton, that sort of stuff that, rake, that makes what seems to be neutral emerge and, and percolate and then makes it obvious that there's this dark matter of patriarchy that, if it's not everywhere, it's, it's fundamental to how we think about public space.
4: <laughs> yeah.
3: Why I start laughing? Do you really think I'm going to try to define affect? You all know better than that, right? The very notion of affect resists its definition. But I will say that we understand that after the so called linguistic term, there's this affective term, right? When we start taking into account intensities and people being affected and affected, that sort of thing. It's more of an embodied response. So there are all kinds of ways to talk about it, whether it's Brian Musimi, E. Segwick, oh, Eula D. Berg and Anna Ramos. I like her piece. She talks about racializing effect. So because rhetoric is about doing, it seems to be perfect in terms of taking into account affect, right? And images do produce affect, right? We are affected by images, et cetera, et cetera. And so I wanted to share this because again, it's, there are a couple of tropes here and that trope does work and how it does work depends on a particular audience, but to, but it has to be read as a trope that does particular kind of work in a way that thinking about thinking about it as a turning. I mean, for me, that only works when you think about it in terms of biology, because at least there you have the flower of the plant turning to respond to the energy. So that's why I wanted to, to share that in the classroom right how do we think about affect well of course we all know well in neoliberalism it's all about efficiency and affect gets suppressed right in a certain kinds of ways but that suppression work it precedes right certain kind of bodies right it's visceral uh, by the assignments we hand out so for me multimodal composition helps because for example my students come into class they think they're going to write on their computers, and I give them a box, a sh- and I tell them to get a shoebox, and I want you to write about the shoebox. Then later on, I have them write about why the shoebox and what it does in their life. After that, I hand them out. They think they're going to write on eight by eleven paper, and I give them a three by five card. And you, it's palpable, right, that the politics of this becomes more visceral measurable, not measurable, more visceral, more palpable, that sort of thing. So there's really a kind of shift there. And so Clashing Terministic Screens, of course I'm borrowing that from uh, from Burke, but I'm calling it a pedagogy of discomfort. And that's just simple, if we go all the way back to Plato and the Allegory of the Cave, he makes it very clear, right? That folks learn when they get shocked, right? It is not comfortable. Pedagogy works as a discomfort, or as uh, Pablo Fieri says, and as Ice Cube says, it's about unlearning. So I think multimodal composition allows me, when I don't have a really big class, to address issues of neoliberal affect, et cetera, et cetera, and at the same time, right, have them think about their writing as thinking, not just writing as conveying information. And finally, I'll end here. Ted, Yoho said that he was not going to apologize for my passion, for loving my God, my family, and my country. Tropes everywhere. And AOC said, Alexander Cortez said, yeah, but bitches get things done. So when he said that, that was her response, right? And so what I, it wasn't in terms of Trump, but in terms of tropes. While he was giving a speech, Foreign President Clinton said that The United States, right, is is a place. America is a trope. And so he made that distinction in terms of the power of tropes and how we need to read. And and this whole notion, I thought it was just wonderfully compact way of thinking about the kind of work that tropes do. So I'll end with that, and we can have a discussion. Thanks for listening.
0: Excellent, thank you very much. And we've got a good audience here from both uh, USC and UC Irvine. So we'll open it up for any uh, questions you might have. I was wondering to get things started. You mentioned reason and resonance in the beginning, and this is something that we've talked a lot about. Um, Boris was my dissertation chair. So um, I know well kind of our way around reason and resonance, but why, I mean, why do you think this notion of, of resonance, which taps into the German, I think, right, soon or, or vibration, um, why does that historically get pushed aside when we're talking about rhetoric and politics? And I mean, why is that significant for, for you, especially right now?
3: Well, think about Raging moms, uh, depending on what you read, women during the pandemic are three times more likely to protest than men. Then you have Black Lives Matter and what's going on around that. And oftentimes when people talk about in terms of their critique, they'll try to avoid their politics by talking about tone, right? Uh, containing certain bodies around issues of tone. And what I like about resonance is that we, and we all know this here, I'm not saying anything that's new, but supported with a a kind of different theory in terms of the notion that truth resonates, right? It has these, if we think about it in terms of affect theory, right, there there are these pre-symbolic conditions uh, in field theory, excuse me, in sociology, this whole notion of a field that pre-exists the folks who occupy this field and actually influences them in, in a way that's like, both inhabit the other. So I think that we have to think of another way, an additional way that persuasion is, to me, persuasion is necessary, but it's inefficient, insufficient to take into account how change occurs. Black Lives Matter and Raging Moms aren't interested in persuading. They're interested in having a certain affect in the world that they think will help them get taken into account in a certain way. So I don't think persuasion covers that. And, um, and so when Myers writes about, and she's not the only one of them, Christina Sharpe's in Black Studies uh, talks about the notion of doing a uh, wake work. And it has a lot to do with sounds and embodiment and that sort of thing. So that's why I think uh, it's important. right? So for example, Thomas Rickards work around ambient rhetoric. it has some problems but what I do like about it is this notion of taking into account all these different influences on the on the rhetorical performance right that that pre-exist intentionality. I think when Diane uh, uh, Davis talks about um, responsibility right the ability to respond right this it's, it's, it's an obligation. I just think that trying to take more into account into the rhetorical situation is productive.
4: I'll follow up on that just a little bit. Sure. Yeah. Uh, Boris, could you uh, put up your definition of trope again? <laughs> no.
3: <laughs> yeah, I'll put it up just a second. Let
1: me see.
0: I was, I was thinking, I know, Steve, in your book, Rhetorical Power, I think you talked about. Trying to take as many conditions into account, right, in the rhetorical kind of uh, process. Not that you can ever fully determine or calculate, but to take as much into account, right, as, as, as humanly possible.
4: Right, and I think that I think that's what Voris is 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 trying to do. Um, and what I'm interested in in discussing before asking a question is just trying to understand. It seems to me the strategy that you're using, Voris is to uh, take some traditional rhetorical terms, and redefine them, and I think it seems to me you're doing that with trope, and I think you're also doing it with with persuasion, um, and so I, I was wondering if we could just just uh, discuss that in a little bit more a little bit more detail. Okay. Okay. So. Um, your definition emits and ex- uh, tropes emit and exchange dense concentrations of pre-subjective experiential and representational energy, and mm-hmm. I also noted that at the end of it, uh, often negating the effect of discernment, and then the examples you were giving were were um, were let's say uh, tropes with a, a, a negative valence, uh, tropes that 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 um, constrain thinking or um, or. Um, have politically negative uh, effects. So I just want to make sure that I understand. What are you opposing? to tropes. What 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 are what are not tropes? I think that
3: that's a good question, and I, I want to think more about that. Yeah. I guess for me, I my concern was not. What isn't a trope, which, uh, of course, needs to be taken into account, but how the definition of trope in terms of how it circulates in culture is uh, atavistic and is not very useful. As a matter of fact, um, reading the New York Times and the LA Times, I've actually written folks and asked them, when they've used the word trope, to explain to me what they mean by that, and that I'm not trying to uh, get any semantic battles with them. I just really want to know what they mean by it. A couple of people have answered.
4: They don't even want to touch it. Right. And and I, I agree. Could you put your definition back up there It's just hard sure. to without without seeing the definition. And it, it it's hard to yeah. So so I first of all, I agree that the, the term trope gets used in popular culture in a whole bunch of different ways. And in fact, in, in my my most recent class in contemporary rhetorical theory, we sort of highlighted that about the way rhetoric and persuasion and trope get used. In popular culture, and, and and trope is an especially difficult uh, term because it sometimes becomes very reductive. There's a whole web page of of of, um, of, um, of, uh, of uh, tropes from television programs, yeah. you know, uh, tropes as as just meaning something like um, redundant ways of of imploding uh, a story or something. But then the, then then there seems to be other other ways that trope is 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 richer, and what I'm trying to, to, to at least initially uh, get at is, are there, are there um, tropes that have positive values for you? Or um, is by the nature of, of your definition of trope, trope is always necessarily reductive or, or um, um, exclusionary or um, a antithetical to, to thought, as you say, and often negating the effect of discernment. Right.
3: For me, I, now I can answer your other question. I think what I'm resistant is the notion that any metaphor is a trope, and I don't think that's the case. I think that's a too broad, reductive genera- uh, characterization, one. And two, I don't necessarily, I'm more I'm interested in what, what tropes do than if they're positive or negative. So that's why I like hearing civility. Um, I mentioned this notion of unruly rhetorics, and here I'm thinking about Susan and Jonathan's that is connection, right? Because what what Joshua Array argues is that oftentimes it takes unruly rhetorics in order to for that to be changed. That that actually the wildness of the record of, of the of the trope, for good or ill, carves out of different space. And to me, that connects to um, Judith. Um, excuse me. Jack Habers' latest, latest book on the wild things, uh, desire, and the order of things, and I just and I just think that she's arguing for this notion of wildness, and that usually gets exclude, excluded, being taken into account. And so this notion of unruly rhetoric to me allows us to think about tropes that otherwise don't come into the, into the common parlance in certain kinds of ways. So again. uh, I'm not thinking about them, and you bring up a good point, but I'm not really thinking about it as a a positive and negative balance. I'm more interested in what the kind of work I think they do in the the world for particular audiences.
2: Can I follow up on that? Another thing that you're, you're, thank you very much for your remarks. And um, I think your definition of trope unsettled me a bit because I tend to think of a trope as something that a rhetorician has control over and can use. And um, I believe you referred to the, the sort of impulse that uh, the kind of a sexist um, impulse of um, the representative who responded to AOC in terms of trope. And, um, so that seems, and and then your first sentence, it's Mm pre-subjective. So, so then these are things that are in the unconscious. These are not accessible by, by thought or rhetorical practice. Um, I mean, this is a very new idea to me. So I wonder how you. What what leads you to make that leap into this whole other realm and and use a rhetorical vocabulary to to describe that?
3: Great question. I don't I don't see them as unconscious. I see them as pre-intentional, and that's why I use the term dark matter. That they're so prevalent in They're so prevalent around certain, uh, excuse me, they're so prevalent around particular practices, around particular cultures, et cetera, so let's take uh, Ted Yoho, for example. Those notions, oh, the quickest, the best way for me to say it is that it's not only that uh, rhetoricians use tropes, but tropes use rhetoricians because tropes perceive rhetoricians in particular sorts of ways. So we think that oftentimes that we're just choosing these tropes because we want to make certain arguments. but what I'm arguing is that certain tropes exist in particular ways, that they precede our intentions. So maybe that's better than uh, pre-subjective. But that's what I was trying to get at. So I don't think it's unconscious. I think that, that we refer to them before uh, when there's a crisis, they're circulated, then they get sparked or they serve as a catalyst and then we pull from them or they pull us and we don't know it. So that's why I think this pre-intentional part is very important. For example, I find it fascinating that in many ways I'm referring to AOC's uh, (coughs) Exandra, excuse me, to her response as being uh, resistant in certain sorts of ways. But if you read like, with Sh- uh, Shirley, Wilson-Loke in the impending and voice and Marilyn Reynolds around Maria Stewart, isn't it interesting that she could not make that resistance about her. She had to make it about other women. She had to make it about, uh, daughters. She had to make it about how this affects women every day. She couldn't just argue, this affects me. Maria Stewart had to talk about God. She couldn't say, well, I want certain kinds of freedom. It is God who influenced me. So that's what I'm trying to get at, how they pre these notions are in the kind of cultural dark matter, the kind of cultural air, and they're there, and we consciously are, without intent, pour from them sometimes. Because, again, I think... We use tropes, but tropes also use us.
0: I mean, do you think that that, although you said it may not be unconscious, I mean, I'm thinking with your work, right, with Carl Jung, I mean, if that would be kind of a collective unconscious notion that there are certain, even if, if archetypes, for instance, figure as tropes in, in some way, or a certain kind of cultural um, symbols or images that in in a way were, created by retors, right a rhetoricians at some point in time mm-hmm. but that uh, pre-exist for instance all of us that, that are part of this collective right so in a sense it, it goes both ways right you have rhetoricians you have individual people creating images creating um you know whatever it might be and that and that those get passed along often and get have effects in a very unconscious way similar to i think Bender and Welbury's book, right? The ends of rhetoric when they introduced that term, rhetoricality. Um, not that it's not that it 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 isn't related to individual rhetoricians, but it's beyond the control um, of the individual uh, rhetoric. And that's kind of gets into I think maybe the Lori Greece right? Who who was part who came to the UC Irvine rhetoric talk and and talked about the Ob- Obama Hope image. Mm-hmm. Uh, which did have an original uh, origin, but then from, from an individual person taking a picture, you know, taking a photograph and then, and then doing artwork and so on. But then it gets taken up and kind of explodes in all kinds of unpredictable ways that circulate um, in, in very indeterminate and have, have indeterminate effects. And that's the kind of, gets in a little bit of that dark matter discussion where you're, you're seeing it in terms of what it's doing, in terms of its effects, getting taken up in different ways. So it seems like your notion of trope kind of encompasses um, that broader sense of rhetoricality of, of rhetoric being beyond individual uh, control or manipulation, right? Or pers- and that gets into going beyond persuasion or the limits of persuasion, perhaps.
3: That makes sense to me. And again, you folks are really giving me some great, useful feedback. Uh, what I would say to that is, I. I think you're right in terms of, say, for example, archetype, which you and I understand is this notion of these kind of, of these patterns that are part of the so-called human unconscious. So, for example, we know that the notion of Adam and Eve, right, is a story, a narrative across a variety of cultures. But what ends up happening with that, with the Adam and Eve narrative, no matter uh, tropes, no matter how it gets expressed, is that the notion of Eve. Becomes well, um, she is to blame for Adam's fall. And if you look at, it just permeates popular culture, the Lovecraft story, uh, excuse me, on, on HBO, Lovecraft Country, the um, Hulu story with Margaret Atwood's book. There, they have an Eve character. What I'm arguing is that, this, this, that um, it exists in such a way that they use, again, these archetypes, although people don't think of them that way, they do have a particular kind of influence. So, for example, many folk, um, I attend these meetings and this training with, young, with youngians, and they consider themselves to be pretty progressive, but I'm always interested in how the trope of the primitive gets deployed around what kind of body how the feminine right can be deployed but it can't be talked about the way the masculine can be talked about and what I'm arguing is those folks aren't just choosing to read those tropes those tropes are permeating the very terrain from which uh, rhetorical terrain is the, uh, they're part of so I, I think what helps me might not help too is so I'm thinking about this not only as symbolic, but this notion of non-discursive rhetoric right? that Jody Murray talked about. I'm trying to take that into account, too.
4: Can I, can I come up with my question in a different way? Because uh, sure. I don't think it, it got to where we could have, have a constructive uh, dialogue over this. Um, um, why, why choose trope to focus on? And then redefine what what does the the term trope as it's let's say traditionally defined or as it's currently uh, available to us. Um, what does what why why are you investing in that particular uh, let's call it rhetorical figure as opposed to metaphor or or um, uh, rhetoricality uh, or or um, symbolic action or you know.
3: Because in my mind, the notion of trope is so prevalent that if I can you know, continue to write both academically, but also in the, in the so-called quasi-public about it, then no one could talk about that better than rhetoricians. And if we can talk about tropes, since it's so prevalent, it seems to me to be the rhetorical term that is most, that circulates in the most kind of intense way then rhetoric and in, in other ways can be discussed publicly because I think the notion of the trope is already there that they see it folks see it as being legitimate that's why
4: okay okay and for, so for and then and then bring to bring to um, that discussion various nuances and theoretical uh, redefinitions that allow you to understand the way that it's working in popular culture but also deepen the more uh, technical notions of what, what um uh, trope stands for. Is that yes? Yeah. Okay. Yeah.
1: I was thinking um just in response to Steve's comment, um, I put it in the chat box for me from my my vantage. I think that trope could be substituted for anything. It, it your idea puts me in the mind on words of um, some work that um Randall Horton, Dr. Randall Horton does around yeah. Cultural memory and the Black radical tradition. Um, wow. his dissertation on distraction and the moaning, um, and so that moaning, and so it's just a distraction. I, I see the trope as being a distraction, and, mm-hmm. and I'm just going to quote just briefly from um, his work, which I'm citing in my dissertation, and and so he referred to um, it as a moaning, which is representative of a Black radical tradition formed through psychological conditioning and the social construction of race, and I think that's what keeps getting missing. We're not saying it, we're not naming the thing that's the thing in this conversation. Um, and He said it has a relationship to memory and trauma. He stated that it is a thing that offers and provide refuge for a black cultural body. And mm-hmm. I, I think you can replace that with gender, race, sexual orientation, religion, or whatever, mm-hmm. uh, as it operates against the grain and how to the untrained ear moaning is nothing more than fingernails across a chalkboard or the flat and fifth note blown from an alto saxophone. Mm-hmm. And um, he synthesized that idea from um, Jacques Derrida's theory of trace, um, which is right. really in the notion of difference and difference, and whereby those who are monolithic impose difference and form a moral judgment of their moral that creates what could be called echoes of the unremembered or the socially constructed on those who they think they deem different. And okay. so that's how i was I was thinking of that, and that um, that trope is this stuck thing that we. Can't some people cannot access or some people have been relegated or pigeonholed into. Um, so mm-hmm. whatever that trope we're naming, I, I I see it in that way. Uh it also put me to mind in thinking of uh Lauren Hill song, Black Rage, uh, when she goes, you know, when she it is it's that 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 heavy weight that's stuck. Uh-huh. That we're trying to uh, unstick, uh that's how I, I mm-hmm. conceptualize what you're talking about. Mm-hmm i
3: i hear you and i guess what you would see me push back is that i think that indeed blackness is a trope and it's not incidental i think it's epistemic and central and and, and thank you for you know linking. you know i mentioned black studies but i appreciate you linking into that so what i my response would be if you think about black studies Uh, and how Fred Moten talks about the notion of the shout or the yell. And for those who aren't aware, it's just that. But for those who understand that trope of the shout, it does all of this kind of work in the world, right? Uh, So there's a difference between a shout and a yell, et cetera, et cetera. And so that's why for me, the notion of the trope is vitally, vitally important Because it's epistemic. And I think it's connected to so when when I hear the notion of the yell, particularly hester's on Esther's Hester's uh, shout or yell or scream, right? It's connected to black trauma, but like in the Negro spirituals, it's also connected to Black being and becoming. So I think those tropes do all this kind of productive work within particular cultures but again I uh, you and, and and this notion that you know Steves asked me about um, what isn't a trope and Susan expressing their discomfort and, and and I mean this is working so I appreciate that but so that that would be my response to, about around the importance of tropes I noticed for example like Sadia Hartman, uh, my colleagues, they will quote her backwards and forwards, but none of them will talk about what she says about rhetoric, in the sapphire trope, right? So that's why I think it's worth revitalizing. Does that does that make sense, Janice?
1: Yeah, it it definitely does. I and and I I, I came. Um, I'm working on my dissertation right now in the mm-hmm. education. Uh, hopefully, I'll finish on one day, one day. <laughs> but um, I'm. I'm focusing my work, um, I'm in the education program, and so okay. I'm doing the educ um teacher education in multicultural societies. But I'm focusing mine on tracing. I'm doing around textual lineage in five generations in my family, mm-hmm. exploring. Um, and so the work from textual lineage come from Alfred Tatum's idea around those stories that shape who we are. Those stories we're exposed to.
3: What and name was that again? I'm sorry, uh,
1: Alfred Tatum. Okay. Alfred Tatum. Um, and so it's. Textual lineage. I'm trying to grab it while I'm here. He does it with black males, but it's called reading for the lives, and it calls rebuilding the textual lineage of African American adolescent males. But I decided it's centered around exploring the textual lineage in my family, the history, those stories that are central to shaping our identity and who we came. I in individual, individual and collective, and so as I start to unravel unravel my textual lineage. Maya Angelou's Phenomenal Woman is a center to my uh, textual lineage. Uh, Alice Walker's Everyday Women is central to my textual lineage. And so when I start looking at the text, women are at the heart and the center of my stories. And I think about in terms of that individual and collective story that's told from my family and the role of women and how women shape my family and men don't have a strong presence. And I'm from the South I'm from Georgia, so you have yeah you yeah, have, yeah. You have, so you you have that and so I started to like you know with within phenomenal woman pretty women wonder where my where my secret lies, you know these women you know, they're talking about her then and the the mother and the two sisters in um Alice Walker's piece looking at that where it's this <coughs> combativeness and it's that that cultural trauma that you know um and and um, DeGroy's work post-traumatic slave syndrome like it all, connect back into how we carry it you know generation after generation whatever trauma whether it's related to gender race class religion um so yeah and so I, i i was just connecting all of those pieces together and think about your work and your your idea around this trope and i was thinking about the black woman trope
3: yeah and there you go right um i think what may be helpful to you is have uh shabia hartman's uh wayward lives have you read that
1: Go ahead and jump in, Meredith. <laughs>
3: <laughs> that would I think that would be a wonderful...
1: It's on the list. Meredith got it for me. I just haven't
3: started. Yet. <laughs> yeah. Wonderful book dealing with that kind of, what, what you're trying to address,
0: right? We uh, need to wrap up, I know Meredith has another meeting, right? Um, so she will take off, but thanks for joining us, Meredith. Um, thanks,
3: Meredith. I appreciate it.
0: And I just wanted to um and if we could on your notion of multimodal composition and, and i really like this pedagogy of discomfort because that's something that i engage all the time and in terms of get you know i think especially in teaching writing you know i'm talking with my students on uh about aristotle's rhetoric you know and how he just it, it, to, to me you know you read you read aristotle's rhetoric and it really feels like um you start with this rhetoric which is part of this dialectical process and it gets taken up in the writing classroom as you know you have a conviction you have an idea you have an argument that you pick that you believe strongly in and then you use the genre of the argumentative paper to confirm that conviction and i always try to get my students to back up you know prior to the point where you have a conviction or prior to the point where you um attempt to confirm it to look at well how did you come to affirm that in, in the first place and to make them uncomfortable with um, their own argument, their own, their own idea, you know, ideologies and that sort of thing? So is that something I think that, that, that speaks to your pedagogy of discomfort? Um, and I'm just interested to hear a little, little bit more about that and, and kind of what, what the result is, I guess. Uh, how do students kind of take it?
3: Um, thanks for that question. It's, it's difficult initially, because all of these expectations about what writing is about and what should occur in a writing's class is exactly what gets in the way of writing, I think, right? And so by approach, by and again, and you know, you and I talk all the time, and it's like, I don't wanna quote Aristotle much, but it's like this notion of the allegory of the cave and unlearning and the shock of unlearning, right? does a particular kind of, it gets away from kind of a master's notion of knowledge creation being like stacked on top of, et cetera, et cetera. And when that happens, it works both ways. It's not only that the students have to grasp discomfort, but so do I. And often, so when I think about like virtue signaling, or when the students, what's the term I'm looking for when the students may be offended by something? Uh, what's the term I'm looking for? And they let, you know,
0: I would like triggered
3: triggered. Thank you. I had to really come to grips with the fact that oftentimes I was projecting my discomfort upon onto them. So if I'm going to teach that way, it's going to be a little dangerous for me. Right? So for example, <laughs> we were talking about the box, the shoe box, and one student had written his biography on the the shoebox. So then I started talking about what biography does in the world. And he said to me, well, Dr. Nunn, you're going on another rant. Now, you know, there's a part of me that's like, you don't say rant. i never said that to a professor, right? But I had to take a step back and then kind of address what he meant. And what he was saying is, Look, I want to hear about this and you want to like theorize eyes out in the air and talk about what you want to talk about. Come back to earth. So this notion of unlearning and discomforting, I think goes against the grain of how most people think about learning and pedagogy. And I just think that a discomforting pedagogy actually in my own classes at the end creates possibilities that otherwise would not have occurred.
0: excellent well thank you um, very much we'll end our second podcast of live theory here um, and a special thanks to Boris Snumley for sharing his work with us we wish you well in uncertain times and hope this discussion has been productive for navigating the manifold precarity that confronts us and we'll be back in spring 2021 for several more episodes until then